0: Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... Alright, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on Us. Mintmobile.com switch. Upfront payment of forty-five dollars equivalent to fifteen dollars per month. Unlimited over forty gigabytes per month face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty P. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty-four. Get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Support for this show comes from the Utopia Foundation. Committed to providing opportunities for people to express their good intentions in local and international communities. Learn how you can create positive change in the world at utopiafound.org.
1: From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. As you just heard, our program today is brought to you by the Utopia Foundation, and we want to thank them for that. My guest today is Dr. Deborah Gordon, whose essay, Why Go Paleo, is a featured piece in the May-June 2015 issue of Spirituality and Health. We're very happy to have her with us today. Dr. Gordon, welcome to Essential Conversations.
2: Thank you so much, Rabbi. I'm happy to be here.
1: I want to start with something you said in your essay about loving medical school. I know lots of doctors have hated medical school, but you make a point of saying you loved medical school, but you became disillusioned with the actual practice of medicine. So I really want to know where the disillusion came from.
2: Well, I actually always liked my practice, liked working with my patients, but since my intention was always to do preventative and lifestyle medicine and to avoid medications as much as possible, in 1979, there just wasn't a lot of guidance in that direction. I was doing my own research and some of it worked out well, but the more challenged my patients became in their own health, the fewer resources I felt like I had to offer them short of a prescription, which I really always knew had side effects. After a certain amount of time, if they were coming to see me, they were not coming for a prescription. They were wanting something that would make them healthier in a deeper way rather than just reverse their symptoms. And there just wasn't much guidance for that 30 years ago.
1: And what changed? Because now you're very much involved in that
2: things changed in kind of two phases. And one of them was, and this was quite a bit before the content in the article, was I learned classical homeopathy. So I had an alternate treatment plan for people should they become sick. But in terms of lifestyle interventions, what really changed, and for me, it's now getting close to 10 years, was that the nutritional paradigm of the cutting-edge physicians and researchers shifted. I'd actually have to say it reverted. So it might surprise a lot of people that in about the time of the Civil War, a man named Banting in England made popular by writing about it his success with a low-carb diet, you know, which was meat, vegetables, a little fruit, red wine, that was it. And he lost a pound a week for a year, and it made the Banting diet famous. In about the 1950s to the 1970s, the United States and really the nutritional world at large became phobic about fat. Well, the French never did, as we know. But a lot of nutritional experts became phobic about fat. And even though I kept eating it, when I had worked with patients who were overweight or had high blood pressure or diabetes, I was using that conventional paradigm until Gary Taubes came out with a book in 2007. Actually, it's funny how he came out with a book. He wanted to write a book about the shifting of the paradigm that maybe fat's our friend. And he approached several publishers and everybody said, we're not going to pay for that. That's crazy. Everybody knows that fat has more calories. It's bad for you. So he wrote a very inflammatory piece in the New York Times called What If It's All Been a Big Fat Lie, got tremendous reader response and had publishers lining up to commission him to write a book. Wow. So he wrote a book called Good Calories, Bad Calories. The good calories are the butter and the bad calories are the bread. And it took off from there.
1: Wow. Okay. And you're on that side of things. I mean, this is what you're saying as well.
2: That certainly started me in that frame of approach to problems. And it definitely helped just incorporating that advice in the late maybe 2008, a year or so after his book came out. But what really has made the big difference is the paleo movement, which seems like it's been around forever. And of course, if you consider our paleolithic ancestors, I guess it has been around forever. And and, you know, we still have paleolithic contemporaries, although they're hard to find. But the paleo movement really began in 2010 with a book by Rob Wolf called The Paleo Diet. Now, the incredible thing about the paleo diet is the spirit in which it's possible to approach anything that sounds as off-putting as the word diet. I mean, whoever wants to go on a diet? That sounds terrible. But the paleo diet encourages people to take a lot of things out of their diet, probably a lot of things out of what they're normally eating, and get really simple with the least allergenic, the least inflammatory, the most ancient of our consumed foods, and to just eat that diet for four to six weeks and see how you feel. And it's mind-blowing for some people, and it's an exciting adventure to go on with a patient who's got psoriasis and is willing to say, okay, I'll go on this diet, and I'll call you back in a month, and, and you it's see, usually a you great follow-up. Yeah.
1: The name paleo always throws me, so I read the paleo diet, I hear of that, and the first thing I think of is, you know, Fred Flintstone, how Fred Flintstone ate, a lot of brontosaurus <laughs> meat or something, you know, I, I don't know right. what he was doing, but it didn't look that healthy, uh, but... How do we know, other than watching documentaries like the Flintstones, how do we know what the Paleolithic humans ate?
2: That gets into a whole field of anthropology, which is quite fascinating, and some of it's actually accessible for a general reader to read. We know from some of the hunter-gatherers that are alive today that have been eating in their traditional way for millennium, uh, millennia, but really we do have records, We can find bony remains and we can process the bones and the teeth. And one of the very interesting things is most of the skeletal remains we have of Paleolithic era people. They were tall as we are now. And when we started eating agriculturally, grains, we lost about a half a foot in height. We only regained it about 100 years ago. So Paleolithic people were tall. If they lived to the age of 60 or 70, which they tended to do if they lived past adolescence, they had intact teeth. I mean, how many of us even have intact teeth at that age? And the women had wide pelvises. So we have their teeth and their bones. And if you process them in a certain way, you can tell what went into the nutrition to build those remaining structures. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, that does. Someone listening to this is going to say, but wait a minute, those people died in their 20s and 30s. And you have an interesting and a compelling response to the claim that, well, if you eat like that, you die young. What's your response to that?
2: <laughs> you know, the, the average age of their death was definitely around 20 or 30. And many of them died in childbirth and they died from infectious disease. And they died from things that you could get taken care of by going to your local acute care clinic and having that deep gash sewn up. They didn't have any of that. So they did die a lot up until maybe about the age of 18 to 20. But if you made it to that age, you were as likely to live to 50 as we are today. And the longer lived paleo people, we have evidence that they could really live to 60 to 70, depending on where they were, and, and that is without ambulances, without 911, without the ER, and their skeletal remains showed that those who lived that long were in much better health than those of us today who are living with the complete support of the medical system. They didn't have toothbrushes and, and you know, <laughs> the, the simplest of, of penicillin that we would take for granted today. So I don't
1: know if you want to speculate on this or not, but I'm curious. Do you have any idea how long a person might live? Blending a paleo diet with modern medicine?
2: Oh, now that really does get to be very interesting. And I think, you know, the oldest person in the world just died a week or two. And I think they were 115. And they were actually pretty healthy. They say, and I'm in this group now, so I'm looking at the divisions, the subcategories very clearly. Over 65, I'm actually elderly. But up until 75, I'm young elderly. And then for another 10 years, you're old elderly. And then after 85, you're serious elderly. I forget what the adjective is for it, but it's a more advanced age. I definitely think 95, to 105 is reasonable and it does bring in a lot of modern medicine. One of the things I think is surprising to a lot of people is that one of the procedures I do that I feel is most helpful with older people is to do some lab testing and some genetic testing to see what particular nutritional or supplemental support your particular genetics might leave you in need of.
1: Right, right. So we have all these other tools and you put it together. I mean, that's a long life.
2: It could be a long
1: life. Yeah, that's right. It could be. I don't want this diet. Give me my Big Mac. (laughs) My life sucks. I'm going to go out with a smile on my face.
2: Right. So the key to all that is however long you live, you want to do something which is called to compress your morbidity. So morbidity is illness, mortality is death. It's only good to prolong your mortality if you can compress your morbidity so you're only really feeble in the last, you know, fill in right. the blank, whatever period of feebleness you're willing to accept.
1: I want to live longer. I don't want to die longer. That's sort of Very well saying. put. We have like 10 minutes. So we're halfway through the show and I want to make sure that people hear what someone who's following this diet might eat. So what's a paleo breakfast?
2: So a paleo breakfast typically includes eggs and meat and a vegetable. I gave a talk last week at our local medical conference on pre-diabetes, and I actually found an illustration of the you know how we've always we've always eaten over, over the time that the agricultural department has given us nutritional standards? We've eaten by a food pyramid. Well, in the paleo food pyramid, vegetables are on the bottom line. People don't remember often that for most people, a paleo diet is truly a plant-based diet. So we have vegetables of some sort at every meal. And it might be leftover vegetables from the night before, or it might be some fresh greens, ideally out of your garden, you know, that you saute up, throw in some eggs and some breakfast meat with it. Whether it's a paleo diet or a standard American recommendation, both of these plans would have us eating more protein at breakfast than I think most people eat. If you want to just your protein recommendation from eggs, it'd be four eggs, which is fine. If you like eggs that much and can eat a big omelet, that's great. Most people supplement with a little piece of meat to get enough protein, 30 grams, to really get the day started well.
1: So if you're a vegan, for example, or a vegetarian, you can share with us the distinction here. But I know a lot of people are going to have trouble with a diet that includes meat, people who think that you're better off maybe health-wise, but also ethically not eating meat. What's your response to that?
2: I take that very seriously. I've been a vegetarian myself for many years. And in addition to feeling my own nutritional need for animal protein, I do much better with it. If people make a spiritual decision that they just cannot take another life, I respect that. If they're doing that choice for health, I have to disagree with them. So in my mind, the best way to have a healthy planet, a happy and healthy cow, and me be healthy is for me to commission a farmer to raise that cow, treat it well its whole life, let it live on pasture, and have a planned death rather than a a natural death.
0: Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24-26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive.
2: There's nutrients that I need. The cow, if properly raised, is good for the soil. And somebody said... Probably the only way we're going to go on on this planet having healthy animals is if we continue to value them as food as we become more and more crowded on the planet. This particular topic, we actually could talk about, Rabbi, for 20 minutes itself. Did you know if you eat beef and green leafy vegetables, you kill less animals in a year than somebody who eats wheat and soy and corn?
1: Right. So I read that you wrote that and I read that and I was absolutely shocked by that. So give us some detail.
2: When you're setting up a row crop, a field crop, like soybeans or wheat, you've seen the big machines out there. They're turning those round things. They're disking the soil. And in doing so, they're killing dozens, if not hundreds, of little tiny rodent souls. They're sending them off to their next life so that they can plant the soybeans or the wheat in a uniform field. If I eat a cow, I'm treating it really, really well. It's not being disked up by some strange machine at the end. And I'm taking one soul to feed me for the year. you Mm -hmm.
1: think that's what it comes down to approximately, if I read this right, a cow a year for a person who's
2: on the diet? Right. And, you know, I think variety is good. And so, you know, I'm eating fish. I'm obviously taking more lives than just the cows. But if you're eating in this world, you're not innocent. Lives are being sacrificed in that process and the plants that are not grown in big rows so the char the kale the things that are can be grown by your local farmer at your farmers market who's not using machinery those are not sacrificing animals pesticides and aren't used and i believe my vegetables are animal friendly and yeah. i wouldn't feel the same about grains in the grocery store
1: yeah, yeah. That was a very interesting thing that you wrote in the article. Uh, I never thought of it in terms of actually helping the planet. Always the opposite. But you made me rethink this. Uh, you also, since it's a hunter-gatherer diet, I'm thinking about Stealing vegetables from my neighbor. <laughs> well, I'm on the pale. <laughs> I'm just gathering what they've grown. I don't want to actually grow it myself.
2: Right. Place. And that quick run that you would take running back from That's your neighbor right. would be the sprint that you need once or twice a week for exercise. <laughs> That's
1: right. And because where I live in Tennessee, everybody is armed to the teeth. I'd be really running fast.
2: Ooh, Good dear. exercise.
1: Good exercise. Can you lay out, and I realize people should go to the magazine and read this in detail, but you outline a six week trial program rather than go through the whole six weeks, which we don't have time for. What can I expect at the end? I mean, you talked about the person with psoriasis. Four weeks later, you're expecting a a transformation. At the end of six weeks, how do I know this is working if I'm gonna give it six weeks to take the trial?
2: I think that's a really good question and there's no single answer to it. Which makes it exciting. You know, when I was in medical school I thought of going into OB and then I did a rotation in family practice and I thought, This is great. I have no idea who's gonna walk in the door or what their problem's gonna be and a little bit I feel the same way about this. So I can think of people where, yes, you have psoriasis, I want you to go on this diet and I will be very disappointed, and I have a second stage of the diet, um, if your psoriasis isn't better. A very set, clear expectation. Somebody else might come in and say, well, I don't know, I've heard about this, I'm willing to try it, but I'm not sure what to expect. And I say, well, gee, me either, but you, know, you should check your blood pressure while you're on the six weeks, because if it starts falling, you'll need to go off that blood pressure medicine. So I'll look at their situation, and I'll warn them about some of the things that could be a good problem like your blood pressure normalizing, if you go on this diet. But beyond that, I say, I want you to come back and tell me. So someone will come back and say, well, you know, I don't have that explosive diarrhea every morning. And I said, well, I didn't even know you had that as a problem. And they said, I didn't either. I'd had it for so long. I'd forgotten what it was like to not have that problem. So who knows how you're going to respond?
1: What about diabetes? I know that's always a big question for people. Does it impact that?
2: It impacts diabetes profoundly, and that's actually the area in which you have to be most careful to give people advice. If someone's on insulin and they start this Paleo diet. You can do Paleo with moderate carbs, but it's hard to do it with a really high level of carbohydrates that's even present in the standard American Diabetic Association diet. If you go on the Paleo diet and you're on insulin, you're going to have to check your blood pressure, your blood sugar on a regular basis, and cut down your insulin because there's two metabolic parameters that change within five to ten days, and one of them is blood sugar, and the other one is triglycerides, and and that's not a problem one that's just a fun one to check oh your triglycerides were 1500 go on the paleo diet and once you get this blood test before you come back in six weeks oh 150 that's quite a change no medication could do that diabetes is the one that is the most exciting but the one you have to be most cautious about
1: so how does it compare let's say to like what dean ornish does and he says he can reverse heart disease his diet sounds a little similar to this
2: we are very generous with fat in the paleo diet, and the the fat oh, okay. is very different than in the conventional right. American diet. So you know, if somebody goes down to Arby's and gets a steak, that's just drenched in its own fat, and that fat isn't particularly healthy for you. If I get a steak out of my freezer, it's got some fat on it, but grass-fed steak from my friend's cow just doesn't put on that much fat. And what it puts on is all omega-3 fats, which I want to eat. So I'll actually, I love this when I was a kid and I get to do it again, you know, eat the ribbon of fat that's around the meat and eat the avocado. So Dean Ornish wouldn't like you to do that. How it compares is very well. Generally, people who follow the paleo diet and the whole lifestyle—and it really goes with the lifestyle—meaning get enough sleep and get a little, you know the right amount of exercise, not too much, and uh, get some sunshine and have a good time. I think people look really healthy and sturdy, and they would they would meet many fitness challenges. I don't think the Dean Ornish diet could be said to be described in the same way.
1: So, what's the reaction so far? Are people flocking to this?
2: They are. I've had to whittle down the number of new patients that I take. I gave a class in our local town through the Parks and Rec Department. It was always over-enrolled and you know quickly filled up and wanted to do it repeatedly. And people have the resistance. At the talk I gave on Friday at the medical center, there was a delightful local physician sitting in the front row and he raised his hand and he says, wait a minute, are you seriously saying I shouldn't have oatmeal for breakfast? My answer is, of course, well, if nothing's broken, I'm not saying you have to do it and you're going to fix it, but particularly if you're going to put your patients for medical reasons, and in medical trials, the paleo diet has equaled, if not outperformed the Mediterranean diet, which is the other you know nutritional darling around. But I said to him, if you're going to put your patients on the paleo diet, it would be really good if you did it yourself. And then I you know, said to him, He might have outcomes he's not aware of. Oh, I don't get those three o'clock headaches anymore that seem unrelated to what you ate for breakfast but might not be.
1: It's really fascinating. I appreciate very much what you had to say today with us on the show. And I encourage people to go take a look at the article. My guest today was Dr. Deborah Gordon. You can learn more about her work at her website, www.drdebramd.com. This week's show was sponsored by the Utopia Foundation, providing the opportunity for people to create solutions that contribute toward a more equitable world. Please visit them at utopiafound.org. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health Magazine. Visit their website, spiritualityhealth.com, to subscribe to the magazine and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.